He doesn't like either one of us. I can see your pastor has a prayer request. Uh, <laughs> what a delight to be with you, and thank you for risking it twice in a row. I think some of you couldn't believe the first time, and so you will listen once again to see what this fellow will have to say. But I am delighted to be back in an attempt to take God's word and to share it with you once again. If you have Psalm 85, I would like to speak to you from that particular psalm this morning. It's a great psalm on the whole theme of, will you not revive us again? As a matter of fact, that question is not my own. I stole it. It comes right out of the text. Verse 6, will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice, not in each other, not in the situation, not in things, but that your people, we, may rejoice in you, O God. So there's the question for this morning. The question is, Lord, will you not turn and revive your church again? Everyone wants to have youth. Um, There is still the quest for the fountain of youth. Wouldn't it be surprising if I could tell you this morning that it just so happens in my travels I have run into the fountain of youth. It is a particularly warm mud pond, uh, which if you bathe in that and then shower off, you are restored in your body. What a bonanza that would be. I mean, we could really sell mud like mad. But on the other hand, I don't want to muddy up the waters. I'm not here to talk about our bodies What about being revived in our souls? What about in the inner person? How much interest does that have for us, to be restored, revived? Not that we should in our bodies just for a good period of 40, 50, 60, 80, 90 years perhaps, live, but what about forever, being revived and restored? And so I take it that this particular text is one that introduces us to the theme that it is high time. As a matter of fact, it is necessary that God's church, those of us who know him and who believe in him, that periodically we be revived. The last time we saw a great revival go across this country, none of us were alive. It was in 1904-1905, or if we were alive, we don't remember it. 1904-1905, that's 81 years ago, beginning with the Welsh Revival and then moving from the Atlantic coast all the way across to the Pacific, both in Canada and the United States and around the world. The Spirit of God grabbed hold of men and women and what used to be kind of just artificial, what was rote, what became dull and boring routine, and how we hate it. <laughs> we hate it in others first, and then it sort of catches on, we say, at two Brutus. It doesn't seem to go with us either. What about that same kind of lackluster, lifeless experience over and over again? Where is that first reality? Isn't it wonderful to see new people coming into the body of Christ? And the nicest thing about them is the freshness of youth in Christ. They, they think nothing is impossible. <laughs> I'm a new believer. I've sensed that all things are brand new. 
and you talk to them about problems, and they say, problems? I thought we were supposed to pray about them. Oh, boy, yes, we, we do pray about them. Well, uh, that ought to take care of it. Well, yes, generally, generally. And just cold water coming all over them, you know. And they begin looking at us and saying, what's wrong with you? You know, suddenly, and you say, well, you'll understand. This Christian walk is somewhat of a long-term situation. And you must kind of slow down a little bit. And, but on the other hand, what a nasty thing for us to do. Why isn't that we don't sense that same freshness, that same joy in the Spirit of God? This text is to help us with that this morning. And uh, it's true, it is from the Old Testament, you understand. And yet, on the other hand, I don't apologize. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. Oh, yeah, we say, we believe that here. What do you think this is? A liberal church? No, I didn't think it was that. But on the other hand, uh, there is something, by the way, in which we practice. You know, the good stuff comes here in the back somewhere. And uh, especially after that blank page. That's where you start, you know. And that's where the good stuff comes. This front part is just a glossary of terms. And that used to be the Bible. Now, you know that's not true. And Paul said that that back here is just wonderful. He said that it'll give you instruction. It'll give you reproof. It'll give you correction. Why, if if you read it, it'll make you wise to salvation. He said, you can get saved from this. And that's what I think he's saying. And that you actually can find the Savior back here in the Old Testament. And people always hold it for four beats when they tell me about the (laughs) Old Testament. I need to tease you a little bit because we do need to smile. We are a funny people. And uh, if you don't think so, just sit back sometimes and watch us in a church meeting. I'm sure the angels must snicker at certain times. When they watch this. Well, enough of that. But what about the text itself? It seems to me that the text is psalm of one of the sons of Korah. That in itself is an example of the grace of God. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. I remember those rascals back in Numbers chapter 14 and 15 and 16. Korah, their father, great, great grandfather, the grandfather of these men who wrote this psalm. Why, what a buzzard. That man was awful. What he did, the earth had to open up and swallow them up because of their sin. So you say, well, in the Old Testament, the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children. I think you've got to mope that verse when you say it. At least that's how some people think you're supposed to say it. So now what am I supposed to say about one of the sons of Korah? Well, you say, well, that's in small print under my Psalm 85. But I want to tell you in Psalms, this is part of the original text. It is for the director of music. Sing this. Sing it, baby. This is a good song. And it is from the sons of Korah, a psalm, in case you didn't know it. And it is one of those which I think illustrates G-R-A-C-E. Grace, the giftiness of God. For he didn't deal with the kids according to their father or to their grandfather. But God dealt with them like he deals with us in grace. So what is the structure of this beautiful psalm, which is called in the liturgical churches, this would be the psalm that would be read on Christmas Day. This is the Christmas Day psalm. 
because it is filled with bright pictures of joy, where like in verse 10, love and faithfulness meet each other, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and all the land will yield its harvest. Yes, joy to the world. The Lord has come and there's peace, there's harmony. No wonder it's a psalm for Christmas Day. It is a psalm for joy too. The main pivot point of the whole psalm is verse 6. Revive us, O Lord. Will you not revive us? Will you not return once again and revive us? Revivify us. Give us new life in order that we may rejoice in you. In order that we may rejoice in you. So I take it that the psalm itself has approximately four divisions. Verses 1 through 3, the first poetic paragraph there, where I think we're being given the first reason why we should pray for this restoration, for this fountain of spiritual youth that comes from God. And then the second reason, verses 4 through 7, and that is, here we get the second movement here. Uh, We ought to pray, not only like in verses 1 through 3, where God brought blessing to his people in the past, but we must pray for revival in verses 4 through 7, because it will bring rejoicing and deliverance now in the present. So verses 1 through 3 is in the past. Six verbs with that strong emphasis, too perverse. He comes down, Lord, you did, you did, you did. Now in verses 4, 5, and 6, Lord, you can do it again. Do it again. Do it in Boise. Do it on this 7th of September, 1986. Do it again, Lord. And a third reason in verses 8 to 9. We must pray for restoration, for renewal and revival. For it will bring the peace and presence of God. Great peace have they that love you, O Lord, and nothing shall offend them. The theme then in verses 8 to 9. And then the last reason, verses 10 through 13. We must pray for revival and for renewal, for that will bring harmony among the brethren. It will bring harmony among those who know each other and know the Lord. So there it is, the whole message. I don't know if you were up late last night, but I thought I'd give you the whole thing so that in case you slipped off into the arms of Morpheus, at least you would know what we were talking about. Now may the Lord be with you till we meet again. But uh, at least we can sort of look at the theme quietly uh, in the same track here once again. Can't you hear the theme here in verses 1 through 3? Lord, you did. You showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. Remember when we were down? Remember how many times the enemy came in? We were at our wits end. And did we not cry out to you, O God? Didn't we do it at the Red Sea? Didn't we do it when we were going into the land, taking Jericho and Ai? Didn't we cry out? Lord, wasn't it when the Assyrian came in? Didn't we cry out at that time too? And didn't you show favor? Isn't that your trademark? You show graciousness and joy and you restore the fortunes of your people. 
And Lord, didn't you forgive the iniquity of your people? And didn't you cover all their sins? Selah. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Say that again. Go ahead. You forgave the iniquity of your people and you covered. You covered all their sin. You set aside all your wrath and you called back, literally. You turned from your fierce anger. Three elements then are seen here in this particular text. Three important components of past history. There is the first one, you showed favor, which implies that we confessed. We owned up. We agreed with God. We said, yes, we are sinners. We are rascals. And we have turned every time. We didn't mean to. We didn't want to. But we did. And you showed favor. You restored. You didn't say, well, 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 it's Kaiser again. (laughs) That rascal. How many times am I going to forgive you? Why don't you take a holiday? And I'm just going to put you on hold. You pray so frequently. Dear Lord, forgive me. I'm just listening here. We'll put you on hold. Have some heavenly music. And um, God will play hymns then for a month. And we'll just hear hymns and no answer. There's none of that. That's not even the margin in my Bible. It just says here, Lord, you showed favor and you restored. And look at how God has forgiven. And hasn't he forgiven us a pile this morning? You take the trash of all of our sin. It would be an awful, awful scandal. And yet God forgave. He covered, he did, he did it in the past, he kept on doing, he still does it. And so that blockage, which all the time gets in a rubbish pile between ourselves and joy, between ourselves and being able to be natural with one another. We get that tinsely artificial kind of thing here. And the biblical text says, Lord, you did forgive us. You forgave our sin. You covered it. And so that which could block all kinds of power of the church, the prestige of the body of Christ, the influence which we've got to have. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Earth's finest hour in the sense that there are more people on planet Earth now than have been from Adam's day to this moment. What a challenge is given to this church called community. What a challenge is being given to all the churches of Christ. And in 14 years almost, we're going to try to double that again. Double that again. Five billion people on planet Earth right now. Five billion. I don't understand what that is. Someone tried to make it plain to me and tried to say, how much is a billion? said, I don't know. It seems like it's my checkbook with all the zeros uh, only on the wrong side of the decimal. And it seems to me that uh, the biblical text, I think, wants us to understand that there it's a huge amount of people. One of my friends said, suppose you had a business that had been going since Christ was here on earth 1,900 years plus ago. And you lost $1,000 a day in your business. That's a good loss. How long can you keep that up in order to lose a billion dollars? Trying to figure out what a billion people are. 
Do you know we still have got some time to go on that billion? Even if seven days a week, I don't know if any businesses operate like that, but if you could have a drain of red ink, a thousand dollars a day since Christ was here, we've still got 700 more years of that in order to get to a billion. A billion. And we must have influence and power to reach the world for Christ. For our Lord is coming soon. The job must be done. <laughs> that staggers me. He'll have to do it. I, I can't do it. I can't do it at all. And we want to throw our hands up. That's it. I'm going to leave it to the Lord in prayer. And he says, look, my dear people, first of all, I want you to get rid of that blockage. And come in confession, come in forgiveness, and have the removal. The removal. Have God gather up his unloosed anger. For our Lord, while he loves us, he cannot be pleased with our sin. And the biblical text says here, this he must call back to himself. What a fantastic statement here then. It seems to me that some of us want to try to identify the psalm. Is this an exilic psalm? Does it come from the exile? But the point is that the psalmist does not need, the psalm doesn't need an historical exposition. For the terms of distress are so general, and they're without any individual reference whatsoever, that they can be used of all times, of all people, and of all places. And as a matter of fact, it is just a commentary on what Moses had predicted in that great paradigmatic chapter, which is so normative for the rest of the prophets and the poets and the New Testament, Leviticus 26, verses 3 through 13. If you'll turn to me, says God, I'll turn toward you. I will show you together as a group mighty power. Blessing. And I'll prosper the work of your hands first spiritually, and you also will see substantial healing in the world around you. Oh, we ought to pray. We ought to pray, Lord, revive us again. Revive your church, revive your people here and around the world. Because look what you did in the past. You showed favor, you restored, you forgave. You covered, you set aside, you turned back, didn't you, Lord? Therefore, we pray, do it again. And that leads us to verses 4, 5, and 6, where there also we have that this uh, uh, text makes it quite clear that spiritual declension, spiritual backsliding brings loss of joy. Loss of joy. For he said here, Restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, so that we may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O God, and grant us your deliverance, your salvation. And so I take it that rejoicing cannot coexist when there's blockage in the life. Now, this brings up a rather delicate point for the body of Christ. Sermons are not times to spank. They're times to encourage and give hope as well. But there must be a challenge. 
And part of our Lord's serious teaching on our coming together was his prayer that he taught to the disciples. And he did teach the disciples, he said, men and women, pray. And when you pray, don't forget to pray, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Who, me? (laughs) Not me, I'm German. I don't forgive anything. Thank you. I still remember those rascals, what they did. I can't believe it. Can you believe it? Let me tell you again. You know what they did? I, I, they, I, they just, that's the third time that's happened. And I just think enough's enough. What do they think I am? A saint? I'm not going to forgive. I refute. Well, at least I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think about it for a long time. And our Lord said, after he taught the prayer, he said, uh, Men, did you get the point that I was making about forgiveness? Uh, I better go over that again. Uh, you see, if you won't forgive, then I can't forgive you either. Wow. God won't forgive me because I've got a tiff with a sister. You read the text, that's New Testament too, (laughs) which ought to be doubly important for us. There it is. I didn't even find that in the Old Testament. But I take it that restoration and revival become possible when indeed our Lord has restored us and when he has put away his displeasure toward us. And so the restoration and the reviving is God's work, not ours. Revival comes from him. Restore us, O God. You do it. Revival isn't something that we can produce. What is a revival? Is it a meeting in which we try to bring in the unsafe? No, not in biblical terms. A revival is a time when God's people, who are saved already, have times of refreshing from God. Acts 3.19 We are refreshed by the word. We're refreshed by new forgiveness. We're refreshed because we decide to bury the hatchet. Not only bury it, but we ask God's forgiveness. We ask forgiveness of a friend that may not even know that they had hurt us, but we know it, and we've held it for a long, long time. Do you know that impedes God's work more than anything else? It's people in the church. That's where the problem is. If only we could get rid of the people, the men and women, church would be okay. At least that's what my grandfather used to say. He said it's the, he said in his German brogue, he says it's the men and the women.